Yeah, we can record it and then um, they can choose whatever they like. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Yo, Millie. Hey, up, Shabina. <laughs> what is the Northern Voice? Have you got one? Have you got a Northern Voice? What do you think? I mean, I've, I've, I sound pretty Northern to myself, but I know to a lot of people I'm going to sound quite, well, inverted commas, posh Northern, but that's because I come from Harrogate, but Yorkshire born and bred. What do, you, what do you think? Well, do you think I sound northern? You sound northern to me, but I know you. And why? What do other people think? Well, I think people get confused about my accent. People have often thought I was Welsh or Scottish. I think it's because they're surprised by a brown person speaking in a Yorkshire accent. And I constantly being, you know, I do get asked a lot, where are you really from? And that's, again, it's just racism uh, and an inability to accept me as a British Asian person. But, you know, that's what we're doing here today, isn't it? In this podcast, The Northern Voice, isn't it? Yeah, we, yeah, exactly. And, you know, throughout the series, we hope to dig into that and explore what that means and, and what is The Northern Voice. Yeah, so what kind of things have we got lined up? Yeah, we're going to be discussing everything from Broadside's origin story to class, gender, South Asian identity, queerness and politics. Fantastic. So my name is Shabina Aslam. I am creative engagement producer for Northern Broadside's theatre company. And I am Millie Gaston. I am a local artist from Harrogate. So during the podcast, I'll be hosting a panel discussion with three invited guests. And Millie? Yeah, and I'll be hosting individual artists about their experience with the theme of the episode. Hello, my name's Shabina Aslam, creative engagement producer with Northern Broadsides. The Northern Voice, of which this is our inaugural podcast, is our aim to explore what it means to be Northern right now and how this translates into theatre for today. In this episode, we're exploring the origin story of Northern Broadsides, who built a stellar reputation on creating theatre with Northern actors and for making Shakespeare and classics accessible. You were guaranteed a good night out in unusual spaces, with Barry Rutter welcoming you in at the door. You knew you were in safe hands, Felt welcome and there would be lots of music with a multi-talented cast who were like a family you wanted to be part of. So today I've got with me Sue Andrews, who began working for Northern Broadsides in 93, just after their first performances of Richard III. I've got Conrad Nelson, actor, composer, choreographer and director, currently Joint Artistic Director of Claybody Theatre, and Aisha Benison an original member of Northern Broadsides and worked with the company regularly for the first five years. Seen recently in Happy Valley for the BBC and several seasons with the RSC, including playing the nurse in their filmed production of Romeo and Juliet. Sue, yeah. how, did you, uh, how did you first meet these other people? At the first rehearsals of uh, Merry Wives, after Richard III because I'd only been working with broadsides from a distance because I was doing another job. Um, and I just gave Barry a hand. And it was only at the rehearsals of the Merry Wives that um, he suddenly realised that you can't do it on your own and you can't do it with somebody who's only doing it, you know, five minutes every day. And um, so I agreed if I could fund myself 
uh, get some funding to pay me something, I'd give up my job and go in with him. So that's what happened. Did you have a, an office? Basically, broadsides arrived on my dining room table in a big, big box, lots of unopened envelopes from the tax office. And uh, I just started going through it and realised that, you know, it, it needed somebody to actually do that sort of work. So that's what started it. So, Conrad, how did you get into it, all this? Um, I worked with Barry at the National Theatre. Um, I probably got the year wrong, but let's say 1989, 1990, something around there on uh, Trackers of Oxy by Tony Harrison. And that was an all-male company. Um, and from that, Barry roughly set up, I think, the idea of Northern Broadsides and invited a lot of the lads to get involved in some uh, readings that we did at the National Studio, um, after which I think the idea then came into fruition. And I, I did have a letter. In fact, I've got it in a drawer somewhere, um, one of these drawers, which I don't want to open because I make a lot of noise on a podcast. <laughs> um, but it's got the original letter from Barry saying, this is on. This is what we're doing. This is about the first Richard III. We're going to try and do it. Are you up for it, basically? So I've always kept that letter because <laughs> there's not many of those letters around. And it's really that is the beginning of the Northern Broadside's journey, really. And I went to see the first uh, Richard III with um, um, a bloke called David Krellin. And we went to see, I think it was the last night in Midland Castle, um, uh, with Aish and we were up all night and it was a superb experience and we were so we were already in the team if you like although not in the show but we're enthused by the whole idea. So Aisha were you in Richard III? I was I was in the very first production yeah um, and uh, I mean I've known Barry since the 70s when he worked with my partner um, and my ex-partner um, and so I, he just turned, I was doing a play in Nottingham, Nottingham Playhouse, and he turned up um, and said, uh, do you fancy doing this, this gig? Um, and he explained it to me and it sounded completely daft, to be honest, um, because until he, did, until he did this Richard III, all the kind of kings and queens were always posh, were always RP, and the servants and lower echelons were, you could have your natural accent. So for him to be talking about, anyway, it, we one knew that it would sort of work because it was a northern piece. Um, it got more complicated when he did things like Antony and Cleopatra, and you thought, oh, come on, can this really work? Uh, <laughs> So, uh, so it was it was a crazy idea, but so crazy that you had to say yes, really. So, yeah. So I started in the boat shed in Hull with the first show, which was terrifying because we didn't know whether people would just laugh at us, to be honest. And that's all come well. All the queens were staying in the same digs in Beverly. That, that, that's um, a lot of people. If you <laughs> yes, yes, that's a lot of people. But I'm talking about the women, actually. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And and so we were in the digs in Beverly, and um, and on the morning that we were about to open, uh, the the free sort of uh, post came through. The three. Um, mail came through the door and the headline on the newspaper was northern broadsides a flop <gasps> and we went 
this is ridiculous. We haven't even opened yet. That's just daft. Um, and actually what they meant was that there were very few ticket sales. Not surprisingly, nobody had ever heard of it. It was a completely brand new venture and there was hardly any publicity, nobody to do it. It was remarkable, the um, the controversy it generated uh, with, you know, what a waste of money it was and why were people doing this, making a laughing stock of whole uh, and, and all that sort of thing. So it was, you know, against all odds, really, at the beginning. And Barry, of course, is from Hull, as am I. So talk about shooting your own. You know, it was a classic. So, yeah. So I would like to hear a bit more about what Shakespeare productions were like before Northern Broadsides. Conrad? It was always conceived that Shakespeare would be delivered in a, a received pronunciation, uh, with received pronunciation, an accent that, that as as it suggests, is is a learned accent. You know, it's it's not a natural accent, it's a, an accent that you, you learn. So we were all universally enthusiastic about the idea of delivering Shakespeare in our own natural voices. The expectation, and it still is now, to be honest, still students come to Shakespeare and add an accent on top of their own accent. Almost, you know, you'd think that would have changed now, but it's it hasn't. Um, yeah, there was a, there was certainly that was the pattern. It was about received pronunciation, and I, as I said, you know, either the northern or the west country for the lower class characters. That's normally a bog standard. It's either a you know whip it yeah. sort of conversation, or it's like west country. Everyone speaks like that, and mm-hmm. it does. That's about it. Um, mm-hmm. I shall tell you a little bit more. Yeah, I would love to hear more about that, Aisha. Apparently, the Daily Telegraph um, said the early performances by Northern Broadsides were a tonic antidote to RSC Gravitas? Well, yeah. I mean, it was it, because everybody, I mean, as, as Conrad was just saying, everybody tried initially to put on sort of posh voices when they did Shakespeare. And especially as soon as you mentioned the word king or queen, they immediately assumed this kind of whatever it was, which, and it also slowed down the language so that people were, see, people were terribly, terribly slow and thought that that was interesting and really elongated everything that they said. And that's, and suddenly there were we, Northern and Yorkshire, quite a few of us, (laughs) most of us, um, but, but doing, and Liverpool the same actually, but doing short, sharp words very quickly. um, And it, it, it made the language very available and very different, and that's what and that's what that's what Barry did, and and he was a fabulous teacher, and he taught. I mean, he taught me an awful lot about how to use the language. He he's so smart about about its use and how to make it vibrant and lively. And he used to call it market language, market trading language. And he's right. And that's what was so different. And that's why it was so fresh. Now it's now it's it's part of it's part of the lexicon of theatre, I think, but started by him. To me it made Shakespeare more real, uh, more immediate. And and I think people listening to it for the first time in voices that sounded familiar and friendly and easy to understand, um, a lot of our audience thought we'd rewritten the scripts. Mm-hmm. I was asked so many times, does Barry rewrite it himself? Well, we're not rewriting it. We're just reading it in a different voice. It was as simple mm-hmm. as that, really. For broadsides, it wasn't just the northern voice. It wasn't people hearing it in a different way, they were seeing it in a different way. 
because it was no holds barred Shakespeare. It was it was rough theatre. Um, it was in your face. It was well. I think for a start, I mean, just opening it at, at venues like the Marina Boatshed in Hull. Mm-hmm. Um, so the audience was sort of just there in front of you. There's no hiding. There's no proscenium arch, no barriers. And so it was the whole experience, I think, that eventually people cottoned onto and thought, actually, this is really good. We understand it. It's telling us more. We're hearing things afresh. They were seeing things in a different way. And there were no fancy costumes. Uh, there was, wasn't any money for it. Um, <laughs> and no set. And that, that, that helped because you're going from uh, one, one week you're in a castle, the next minute you're in a, a posh theatre or a velvet space, as Barry called it. And, um, and there was no time to put up sets and get everything trimmed up. It was the basic stuff. And it really brought the text to life. I think it showed you that you didn't need all the trappings. Not really. All you needed was a jolly good play and some actors that knew what they were doing. So yeah, it, it put all it put all the emphasis on the language, really. Um, as, as Sue said, you know, and Barry would say, you know, it was lights up, lights down, one cue basically. If you're a lighting designer, you wouldn't have much to do on those early shows because it really was two or three cues, and uh, it was the action, the actors that was driving it on, which was, the, I think, one of the also the principles of starting the company in the first place so that all of the resources came down to the stage level as opposed were locked in an office administrative level above. So everything was poured onto the stage, which is why, um, maybe less so then, but certainly now, that the, the cast sizes were remarkable because they were, you know, often, often getting up to 20. Wow. Uh, 20 actors touring. That's a, a, a huge, I mean, th- there aren't many companies that do that now, no. including the National and including, you know, who tour those, that that body of actors that come out. And that was because it was very light at the top and heavy down on the stage level. And that was brilliant because it created a, a wonderful rolling ensemble of actors who were, who were just were using their physical presences to tell tell the story and their vocal energy and what you got the terrific thing about of course of playing a site specific venue like a boat shed or like the the castle you know or the tower or something like that is you can't buy those sort of backgrounds and people um, now we find this as well when when you do a site specific piece the audience are already buying into the concept because they're coming to somewhere new so they can come into a boat shed that they've seen there for a hundred years or a castle that's been on the landscape and not feel any barrier to coming to see theater and once they come in there and they hear people of their own voice speaking that back you've got an association on two different levels and there's a bit of magic there you just can't create and I think one of the difficulties as it as the company went on early difficulties when i say uh, hurdles i think is when the popularity of the company grew and it started going into more traditional theater spaces you know uh like the, the hammersmith when we taught when we were there for three weeks and that and those venues that we the success of the company drove us into more popular traditional theater venues and then you had to play eventually you have to accommodate those venues because they don't quite have the cachet of a boat shed or the, you know, the energy of those found spaces, I think. And then you're having to create a space within a theatre space. So, you know, I think there's a bit of a, a bit of longing for the times when you could just open a door and go and play a space. We still say that, you know, as Barry would always say, when, the first thing I do is when I go to a place, I think, can we play it? 
that's you know and that's what Barry would always say can we play it can we do it can we do it here and now and I think there's a great energy in that and and, and that's together with those natural accents and those spaces it really created a, a groundswell of, of of energy and enthusiasm from the cast and from the public um, who could hear Shakespeare and, and, and classical theatre done in a new voice that spoke to them that was you know, priceless. Well, that sounds fantastic. I heard that you went to Skipton Cattle Market. We did. <laughs> Can you tell me about that, Aisha? Do you remember? Were you there? I was. Of course I was. <laughs> I, yes, I was one of the originals. I was there just after they took the cows out. I tell you, the <laughs> smell was overpowering because they were still selling them in the ring. So the first time we went, it stank. It was shocking. Um and I have to say, my abiding memory, because we did the dream there, didn't we? And, I, and I, my abiding memory is Peter Gunn, who is one of the funniest people I know, who's now in Coronation Street, of course, who'd invented a character called Keith, who was so crazy. And he used to pop up over the stalls as Keith and make us laugh so much before we went on stage. We were absolutely hysterical. And he, well, very funny. But we played the most amazing places and that was that was certainly one of them but also the thing that he desperately wanted to take shows abroad which we did yeah. um oh. so, which we did a lot so i mean we even did. the first one i know which was brilliant so the first the first show that we took to copenhagen that was the first tour wasn't it which was amazing yeah richard the third and then merry wives won this competition we we did it in london and standard charter bank i think it was re, were looking for a play to take to india uh, mm-hmm. and they chose us and our production of course because there was because wow. it was very available but it was also probably one of must have been one of the best shows and and actually what was brilliant for me about the india bit was that we took this play and of course people take it for what for for, for their own culture and they loved it and got it all, got more laughs than we did in other places because they so understood the play. It was brilliant. Um, but also they took it as a st- the story of an arranged marriage, which, of course, we never did because that isn't part of you know things that we would think were terribly important. But for that, And so the cheering when the couple got together at the end and everything was hilarious. We couldn't be... It was the most wonderful unexpected response to a show it was fantastic just going back to the i'm just going back to the cattle market because i think it's important to say that the cattle market was a cattle market that's what it was it was never a theater and and just taking that it's probably out of of sync this but just taking that lesson i'm thinking about what lessons i've taken forward about being from you know working with broadcast for such a long time and the idea you mentioned on the intros of Barry and then subsequently everybody else welcoming people as they come in. So mm. when you're in a space that doesn't have a green room properly, you're getting you're getting dressed underneath a board table or that's sitting or whatever. You you also communicate with the audience that are coming in because you you have to anyway because there's nowhere to go. But it makes a delight of that connection between art and people, you know. And when we're talking about policies of of the Arts Council now, it is all about that that connection that Broadsides did so well and uh, better, I think, than almost any other company that I that I knew of at the time because it literally pressed the flesh of the people who were coming to, uh, uh, coming to join in. That is a piece of magic that everybody mm. should do and I still maintain 
that a lot of professional theatre or professional organisations don't do that very well. They sort of hide in a box and then come out to play. And I think broadsides never hid in a box. The box was always open. You could always peer inside and see what was there. And that that is a touch of modern magic, really. So I've heard so much about the way that Northern Broadsides was like a huge family. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I think it, well, I think it was because I think for all of us, we'd never worked with a completely Northern cast before. So it was that extraordinary thing that everybody seemed jolly. Everybody was, well, yeah, I mean, 99% were jolly, up for a laugh. And, and you, you had a kind of connection before you started, which I think, which I think showed in the productions. So I think that's, that's how I would take it as a family. The energy was, I guess, similar across the cast. It was very forward and very, yeah, it was very front clothy. The energy, if you like to borrow a phrase, we were all out out there. I don't mean in the, the fact that it wasn't detailed. I mean that's the frustration, isn't it? You suddenly speak with a a slightly different voice, and people think you're not your work's not detailed. It is was detailed. It was extremely detailed. When you talk about all the text work that Barry was doing, it was you know it was that was that was the core core work. But it was it was accessible and and it was fun, and so it was family in that way. And it sort of the way the whole company I think sort of progressed was like a family business. It drew in people and it drew in other people, and and a lot of these actors were first generation actors. You know, people. I'm thinking about people like Matt Booth. I don't know why Matt Booth comes into my mind, but you know, he's a farmer's son. You know, that sort of thing. They were coming from a different place. They were they were bringing all of that real world energy into a theatre company. So it wasn't a rarefied uh, um, environment. It was practical and energetic, right down to you know the early days of making the music in in in, in broadsides. When we went to record Richard III on the radio, we, we basically got all of the um all of the uh, uh, bins, the, the dustbins and stuff, and made the music out of detritus in the even in the radio studio. But it started off very, you know, very poor theatre again, like Sue was saying. I think that was one of the unique things is that Broadsides also brought to audiences was that the actors didn't just bring their voices; they brought songs and dance and their instruments. So we were one of the first companies, I think, that regularly did. Um, and brought music into things that didn't have music, like like Shakespeare, etc. Um, but it was the fact that suddenly uh, the actor would pick up an instrument and give you music, and it's. I think that was something that was unique to us uh, early on. I mean, I'm, I might be wrong. Con. I think I think early doors, the idea of you know actor muso shows. When you, when I think how long ago that was, now that's four, that's thirty. What is it? 30, 30 years ago, but that it's changed completely. That there's an expectation, or there was an expectation, that you would have have actor musos latterly. But early doors when broadsides were touring, that wasn't the expectation, or it wasn't in my mind mm. um, in that way. So it was, it did start a trend in that. And I'm not saying Northern broadsides were the only people to play site-specific venues, but. Funnily enough, 30 years later, the site of the popularity of site specific playing is come back full circle again. You know, we do it as a company, as Claybody do it. That's where we find the energy for doing some of the shows, very similar to that early broadsize energy. It's 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 it, it gets your artistic juices flowing. So 
there were some, I think, whether they were designed or whether they were accidental or whether they came through because there wasn't enough money or there wasn't enough facility, whatever drove those little inventions on, broadsides were at the centre of those. Whether they realised it or not, they were. And, uh, and, and, and I think that, you know, acting with the Northern Voice when Barry was driving that forward, actually – the idea principle of that was was given to the company by the the audience who watched it because they recognized it and they would say ah this is what you're doing you're you're creating shakespeare or classical theater that we can appreciate um there were other things to drive i think the creation of the company but i think for, like we've talked about the idea that it was couldn't tour internationally because it was too heavy but when the audience saw what was happening it was northern voice they really got behind it uh, and, and wanted more of it because it'd be something that they'd never seen before. So it was groundbreaking. So did you need a Northern accent to be cast in a Northern Broadside's play? Ninety-five <laughs> percent um, of the time. <laughs> there were a few few strays who got um. in, who who didn't, who weren't, who weren't the true. But on the whole, it was a passport job. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, and like I was saying, a lot, lot of Yorkshire. Obviously, a lot of Yorkshire came through, and and folks like me or Scousers and Northwest things. That was a tricky journey. And Barry will say that he said, you know, he was. They were looking for Yorkshire. So was Tony Harrison when we sneaked into the the sort of uh, ranks of trackers of Oxy Rinkus. It was by the skin of your teeth. It was only probably because Lawrence Evans, a Mancunian, said get him in he can move a bit probably that i squeezed that one out but really because it was quite and and it was interesting because obviously yorkshire vowels are not the same as scouse vowels they're not so you know sometimes we'd have to fight o'connor we don't say oh we don't say we say oh you know but so you were trying to stay faithful to your own voice within the context of northern broadsides which was you know sensibly you know driven by a, a, a yorkshire uh, fella, so yeah, it, it was good, but it was a, it was the combination of those voices, I think, that yeah. gave that, that enriched it all. Could you tell me a bit more about Barry's approach to the text in rehearsals? What he didn't do was psychology because ah. he didn't believe in it. So he didn't do. So you had to find if you wanted to find your own background or your own backstory or whatever you want, you did that yourself. But the text was absolutely the ultimate yeah, the weapon yeah. that we had. Yeah. So so he analysed it brilliantly and and also knew how to use it and taught an awful lot of people, including myself, how to speak it in 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 as as well as one possibly could. And and just just on that. I think he was the kind of the forerunner of so many styles because at the time, so much of Shakespeare was done in kind of, you know, not just velvet drapes, but massive amounts of furniture and changes of scene and whatever. And he brought the simplicity back that then became fashionable again. Mm. And I do think he was the kind of the the start, the you know, the forerunner of all that. So, so, but the text was nobody could ever say that he didn't use the text. That was absolutely the point of the work. So, um, yeah, yeah. everything else could go apart from the text. And like I said, you know, you'd have actors going in corners, going, yeah, but what, 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 what does my character want to do? (laughs) Say say it, and it makes sense. If you know what I mean, that's the key. Yeah. 
What was it like um, adapting from uh, from venue to venue? If you were going from a non-velvet to a velvet space, uh, was it difficult to adapt or was it built in? How did you manage it? It was brilliantly quick because because when you do a tech now for most for most places, you know, it takes forever because of the lighting changes and, you know, it goes on for days, whereas this used to be two hours. So you'd always get your Monday night off or quite often. So then you travel up on a Tuesday morning, do your tech in the afternoon and get it on in the evening. So you didn't forget it <laughs> or try not to forget it in my case. Um, so, yeah, so it was it was blissfully quick. Do you think it kept actors on their toes, didn't it? Um, you know, having to adapt very quickly to a very different space. And there was, there was always a freshness of, and, and energy um, in the, at, at the next venue. That, um, it, it just kept it alive, kept it fresh. There are times when, you know, that it, it what sometimes it was, it was Q to Q, rapid, get it on, change. Um, and, and, you know, basically you didn't quite know which exit you were coming on or off. Not really. So as you were going off, you always had to keep an eye out thinking, am I going off the right way? Because you'd literally done a two hour, two and a half hour play in two two hours. So you're not even having a chance to to process it, but it made you think quickly and it made you keep the text at the forefront, I guess. It made you uh, understand spaces a little bit more. You know, actors are not all naturally brilliant at, at spatial awareness on stage. That's not a criticism. It's just a fact. So it, I think it helped you balance a stage when you you had to keep thinking on your feet all the time because you were moving so rapidly from venue to venue and as you say going from a found space to a, a traditional theater space again that's a big learning curve but there was a there was a growing knowledge between uh, in the ensemble in the family if you look so so that you had a lot of people who who came to broadsides wanted to come back so that, that's got to be, apart from just working, there's got to be a reason for that, isn't it, that actors wanted to come back. And, of course, you built up this continuing knowledge who, who were more adept at that touring model, who, who, could, who could think quick on their feet, who knew what to expect, I guess. Aisha, were you going to say something about the changes? Uh, no, I was just going to say I think it attracted actors because we had – it was so exciting at the beginning because we had a, an unknown space that we had to decide where to come in from and how to use it and how to get off. Um, I mean, I always remember going to going to Hull um, the second time with Merry Wives playing the City Hall and I was doing Mistress Quickly and as a cleaner in Michelle's suit um, and realising it was a jolly good idea with my J-cloth to clean the whole of the steps going down the middle of City Hall, clean the whole of the sort of banister. And, you know, which took a long time. Um, but things like that it was really good fun. So you don't often get choices like that. And, and, and so a lot of those choices were thrown open to you. So there was a lot of freedom, which was fantastic. So you weren't, you weren't confined. We, we, were, we were all opened up, I think. And I think all of our work improved because of it. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> I noticed that, yes, in the uh, later years, you did attract big name stars like Lenny Henry. You played Iago to his Othello, didn't you, Conrad? What was that like? Uh, great. I think, you know, Barry, I think Lenny was making a, I might have got this wrong, so Sue 
or Ice can correct me on this, but Lenny was making a program, I think, uh, for the BBC, and that's uh, that's where Barry met him um, to talk about language and talks about Shakespeare language, and that's and that association obviously then naturally grew because um, Barry said, "Well, you know, how about it, Len? Basically, come and come and play Othello." That's and 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 I think Lenny probably sort of stole himself and thought. Shall I? I'm a comedian. Shall I go, Shall I take this leap, which was significant? But, you know, if you were going to take a leap, it was best in Barry's hands, I think. He he made the right choice there, did Len, um, his gut feeling. And, of course, he was completely embraced within the company when we did it at West Yorkshire Playhouse, as it was then. Um, and, and what was good is Len's got a very good work ethic, um, and, he, and he had to because there's sort of no prisoners in that rehearsal room. We all very supportive but you've got to get on with it um so i i, I really like working with him um because you know you, you do as a hugger with an othello because he was so yeah he was so committed to doing the work and i'm committed to doing the work i like doing the work i, I don't like not doing the work I, you know if i'm going to be in a show and, and 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 do all that and if you're writing the music as well you've got a different mindset and learning iago You've got to get on with it, and you want to be in in in, in rehearsal room because I don't like feeling insecure when I go out on that first night. So I want to work it, work it, work it, work it, work it, and find out what it is. And so to have somebody like uh, uh, Len who um, wants to do a similar sort of thing was a good partnership for me. I'm just me and Len. I'm talking about in terms of that that relationship because yeah. we'd always go through the play before we did it, mostly mostly every night. And we did it in the event for about nine months. So that was a, I mean, let's face it, I'd had enough after nine months <laughs> saying those lines because it's like three hours speaking. I was, you, you're glad to get, you know, you're glad when it's over. I am glad when I hit the floor and go, oh, over to you, Len, to finish this playoff. It's, it's an absolute <laughs> delight because it's a, a wonderful privilege and a little tiny bit of a burden because you wake up, you go, okay. <laughs> You know, most of your day is headed towards <laughs> half seven. That's what how I, it gets me. You know, obviously have fun, and but it mm. but it was a great and it's first experience that we had as a company that a, a show. Correct me if I'm wrong. So show transferred to London uh, to 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 do that, mm. and that was a it was a lovely thing to do that. Um, I, uh, to to be in London, working in London, because that's the first time I'd done that for a long time and get to know London in a although I used to live there, get to know it in a different sort of way. So I get up and have a cup of coffee or go and see the framers down the road. It felt like a village then. And I've always really enjoyed that. Um so it was a great privilege and and, and obviously still in contact with with Lenny. Well tell me about the parties. Apparently I was listening to Barry on Desert Island mm -hmm. Discs and he said um all the parties ended with uh, Frank Sinatra's one for my baby and one for the road at 3.45 a.m. Yeah. That's about right. right. <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. We had fabulous parties. But it was also because it was such a jolly, usually such a jolly lot. I mean, when we went we went to Brazil, we did a tour of, of Rio, um, Sao Paulo and uh, Brasilia. And, they, and we did lots of kind of press and they called us the company who laughs because <laughs> we were always having a laugh, really. So, so of course, we had loads of parties. We had a ball. We had a wonderful time. It was absolutely great. I mean, yeah, parties are us. <laughs>
The founding father of Northern Broadsides, Barry Rutter, was invited to participate in this podcast. And Sue, you talked to him about that, didn't you? What did he say? I think he's. I think Barry wants to move on. He's sort of drawn a line under Broadsides. Uh, he loved it and nurtured it, um, and then he left it. And he he felt by coming back to it somehow he would. Um, he didn't want to be. I don't know, trying to take it back somehow. I think that was his feeling. So he was his reluctance to do it. It might have had something to do with the technical side of it as well, having to put on headphones and plug himself into something. Maybe that. I don't know. No, I, 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 Sue, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I spoke to Barry about it, and he said, he said he just believes in moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this this seemed like you know, it wasn't. So he's he's moving forward with lots mm. of new lovely ideas and things. So that's why, not not any disrespect, but just because it, it, this is history for him now. I'm constantly referencing not not going back. I've, I feel like Barry, exactly the same way about going on. What's useful is when we refer it, starting a, a new company and stuff like that, is, is cherry picking the real pluses of, so, so although we're moving on, not to leave that is not to, not to dwell on it, but to go these particular particular. There's a few gems there to take forward. So by moving on, you take the good, the really good bits with you, and that's about memory. But it's also about practicality and how you how you deal with people and how you make a theatre company um, relevant. I guess, and they're really important lessons to take forward. And and so I'm happy of being on this journey to then take that forward from here on. And it's, uh, it's some real gems, I think, there that we still use as reference points. Well, let's um, let's wrap up by talking about the things that we can take forward, what theatre can take forward from um, what was learnt through Northern Broadside's adventure. Maybe Sue, what do you would what would you like to see theatre, the theatre the ecology take forward from Northern Broadside's past? I don't know. Just never lose the joy of it. Theatre is such a joyful thing. Um, and I, I look back on broadsides, like today, and thinking about doing this interview and um, looking back on the great times we had. But I think the overriding thing is it was hard work, but it was joyful. And I think sometimes we can get, we do get too embroiled on wondering what Hamlet had for his tea on occasions. And I think just get out there and do it. Um, mm. Never be afraid to try something different. Because if Barry hadn't tried something different, my life would have been different. A lot of actors' lives that we were involved in would have been different. Um, and I think the theatre world would be poorer for it. It's really beautiful. Thank you. Aisha? Um, no, that was well said, Sue. Um, no, I agree. I think I think to go back to the text as being the most important thing, to not be too top-heavy. I mean, I've done a lot of work at the RSC in which I've absolutely loved but there's so many staff and such a juggernaut to keep on the road i think to the the, the simplicity of, of really knowing who you need is fantastic um and also the fun um i absolutely agree about that and i think a lot of that's been lost um sadly because of you know the circumstances and certainly now 
Um, I mean, what a time, what an extraordinary time we've all had. I mean, I don't know about, I mean, I got closed down on a press night in Leeds, having just been to Japan um, and with, with a Japanese cast who were devastated because we'd had the fun being in Japan and they'd, their fun was coming to England to play. And of course they couldn't. So it was just heartbreaking. Um, we must get it back. And it must be less about buildings and more about plays, mm. I think. And people. And people. Conrad? Yeah, just what Aish and Sue said, less about buildings, more about people, I think, is 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 the key, because that's what it always was, and that was always the joy. You, you can fund a building as much as you want, but without the people in it, there is nothing. There is nothing. So we forget that at our peril. Put it into folks, creative folks or people who've got ideas who want to take these energies and want to join, can join people together, particularly now when we've been separated for such a long time. And I know a lot of performers, experienced performers now who feel really, really isolated and very uh, uncertain of themselves because they've not practiced anything. They've not been with people. All of those things that we would do all the time, they've not been able to do. They've not even be able to sort of live on the promise of an audition or something in the future. It's been very, very, very uh, unsettling for, for, for a lot of people. So get people together, spend the money on folks um, with energy and put those creatives together with the people that were supposed to entertain, to serve, to inform, all of those things. That's the joy. That is the joy. Thank you so much. I'll, uh, we'll make sure that Northern Broadsides continues to do all of those amazing things. Thank you. Thank you, Sue, Aisha, Conrad. Thank, Thank you. you Thank you. Nice <laughs> to see you all. It's lovely to see you. Great to see you. Hello, I am Millie Gaston, an actor and writer from Harrogate, now based in Leeds. I first worked with Northern Broadsides during lockdown 1.0 as part of their digital squad. Since then, Team Northern Voice have been busy squirrelling away to create a theatre podcast with the North at its heart. In this segment, I will be chatting to artists across an array of disciplines, from writers to performers, backstage and anything in between, by asking a series of questions about their experience of working in theatre. To continue the broadside story, I would love to welcome Laurie Sansom, Artistic Director of Northern Broadsides, previously Artistic Director of National Theatre Scotland and Royal and Derngate Southampton. Laurie took over the company in 2019 and has since produced Christmas Broadsides, The Aftermath, toured J.M. Barry's Quality Street, created an abundance of work digitally throughout the pandemic, and most recently helped to set up the Young Writers Forge, a writing group for anybody aged between 16 to 25. Laurie, welcome. It's so great to talk to you and have you on the podcast. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Millie. I think it's best if we just jump straight in with the first question, which is... You have had an incredibly successful career to date. Can you share something you're most proud of and a challenge you've overcome? Oh, okay. Well, nice of you to say so. Thank you. Um, I guess one of the biggest challenges is also the thing that I'm, one of the things that I'm most proud of, which was making the James plays, which was um, a trilogy of new plays by Ronan Monroe that we produced in Scotland in 2014. Um, the challenge really was, um, this was three full-length plays about James I, James II, James III of Scotland. 
a piece of history that um, not a lot of people know about. Um, and you could see them all in one day um, with one company of 21 actors. So, which was kind of like an 11 hour marathon, which is something that I love. I think theatre should always be like 20 minutes or, you know, 11 hours. Um, and this was an 11 hour version. And um, we were making it to open at the festival and we didn't really have enough time. Um, and so it was, it was so tough. I mean, it was, you know, three months of uh, wondering whether we were going to make it. It definitely felt like running a marathon and weren't sure whether we were going to get over the finishing line. Um, but it was really satisfying as well. And I think it was challenging because um, the writing was just so good so that you felt real pressure about doing it justice because I knew these could be brilliant, brilliant plays. But I also knew it was going to take a lot to get them onto the stage and do them justice. So um, it, it did kind of scar us all for life in some ways, but it was worth it. Um, so much so that on the final weekend, and we, we, we toured with them internationally for a bit a couple of years later, um, and we were in Toronto, um, um, I actually got the technical drawings tattooed on my forearm. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, never had a tattoo ever before in my life. Never had one since, but it felt like I somehow had to mark that on my body um, to kind of just um, honour what that experience had been like that I'd shared with with so many people. Yeah, definitely. And I think especially after lockdown, we're really going to want to emulate some of what you did with the James plays in terms of cast size and being in the theatre as long as possible. Well, it's interesting, really. It's like, uh, and they're also going to be the things that are going to be really tough moving forward because of um, the economic situation and, you know, trying to pick the cultural sector back up again so it can play a really important part in the country's recovery is going to be so important. But one of the things that Broadsides has always done brilliantly is tour with really large casts, um, in, with big plays and we're determined to still do that uh, even if it's going to be tough and we're going to find do our damnedest to find ways to do it and to share that with audiences around the country but it isn't going to be easy yeah that's amazing and so you were talking about Scotland and that's actually a long way from where you actually grew up which was <laughs> in Kent yeah. but um, from a very early uh, stage in your career you were brought up north what brought you to Northern Broadsides and what's it mean to you? Well, as you say, I spent a lot of my formative years um, in Scarborough. I was um, working as Alan Aitborn's associate director for four years. Um, and at that point, the theatre was just doing new writing. And that was such an, an amazing experience for me as a young director. Um, but partly because Alan is such a generous artist himself and his support and his hands-off approach, just dropping in the killer note when you most needed it, um, but otherwise just letting you get on with it, um, was just what I needed. Um, so I was doing six or seven new plays every year for, for four years. Um, a bit of a conveyor belt at times, but actually you get into a certain zone with that, that you just get in there and do the work with, with the actors in front of you. And that has a certain power to it. You know, you can't overthink anything. You've got a couple of weeks to get a lunchtime show on. Then you're doing a main house show in the round. Then you're doing one in the second space. Um, it was a brilliant, a brilliant time. And I loved living in Scarborough. So, um, yeah, it feels a bit like coming home. Do you think that that's something that you've really, like, brought into your own practice in terms of creating many shows? Or are you sort of different in that, in that respect uh, from Alan's approach of putting on seven new plays a year 
<laughs> well, I've never done that again. Um, <laughs> what's interesting about that is that Alan and I are quite different directors, but there's something we really share, which is a, a huge respect for actors. Um, Alan has that in spades and, and I have that. I started out acting. Um, I was a very bad actor. Um, I, but I always think that if I, if I hadn't tried acting, I, I'm not sure I would have known quite how to best support and facilitate actors in the rehearsal room of when to say something, when not to say something, when to get out of their way is just as important as when to give them some some support or some inspiration or, or, or guide in the particular way. Um, so, yeah, I think we shared a lot, um, but in other ways, we're really, really different um, and have a really different approach. It's a bit like talking about me and how Barry worked, because in some ways you couldn't think of two more different people. But what we both share is a love for telling bold, accessible stories in shared spaces with audiences, a lack of pretension about how we do that. And there might be lots of other ways that we're probably quite different, but um, lots of ways we're different. But actually, there's something about wanting to share stories in really playful, theatrical ways with audiences that we do share. And, and actually, that's why Broadsides felt like a really good fit for me. I was coming home, back up north, and able to take on big, chunky plays with big casts, which is something I've always loved. Um, yeah, so it's a really it's a real privilege actually to be leading the company through its next phase. Because you were actually the person who came up with the title for the podcast, which was the Northern Voice. I wondered if you could unpack that and say what your understanding is of the Northern Voice. Well, yeah, it was pretty obvious though, wasn't it? Really, because actually, broadsides have banged on about the Northern Voice since its inception. Because as we all know, it was started um, by Barry and. Um, uh, the actors he brought uh, along with him to do classic work in their own voice. And that remains right at the heart of what we're going to continue doing at Broadsides. Um, it's also exciting, I think, to explore what the Northern Voice or Northern Voices are now, because the region's changed massively over the last 30 years. And actually how we reflect the multiplicity of voices and identities across the North is also something that I'm really keen to put right at the heart of our mission. And do you think that that will be reflected in the disciplines you choose? Will it purely be uh, the sort of classical theatre that we know broadsides? Because I've already seen that you uh, have done The Aftermath, which um, was an incredible piece that you did with Northern Rascals. And that's already kind of breaking down those boundaries. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, do you know what I, what's really important to me is that we don't put up fake barriers between different types of work, different types of audience, different ages, because I think these, uh, these are sometimes instilled in us by the Arts Council rather than actually being real things. It's like, I know that as a teenager, I loved going to Shakespeare. It really opened my eyes up to um, the theatre and want, made me want to work in the theatre. Um, and also, uh, uh, older audiences love watching contemporary work where young people are expressing, like in the aftermath, how they felt in the middle of, of lockdown and about their cha the changing world around them. So I think the barriers we put up are often um, perceived ones or we erect them when they don't really exist. So I think what's exciting going forward is um, breaking down barriers between the classical repertoire and new work, uh, between age groups and going, well, actually, how can we take people on a journey um, to things that they maybe haven't been offered before? 
Um, but with the reassurance that they're still going to get a really powerful, emotional, playful, theatrical experience. Which leads me brilliantly on to my final point, which is what does the future of the company look like? Well, one of the things we've been doing is starting to make all of our productions with a group of people called a creation squad. Um, And it's a way of us making sure that all of our work is really resonant. Um, So with Quality Street, uh, which we were touring um, this time last year, just when lockdown happened, and we managed to get to three or four venues um, before the tour was cancelled, sadly. So we lost four months of touring. But that production, which is a play by J.M. Barry from 1901, um, and, you know, it's got some creaky gender politics in there. Um, So what we decided was to work with a creation squad of uh, women who'd recently retired from the Quality Street factory in Halifax, who between them had like hundreds of years of experience of working on the shop floor, um, on the factory floor. And um, and also they shared their stories with us of um, working there, but also they commented on the play as we went along. So we would perform scenes and ask that for their commentary. Um, and it was like having a live goggle box. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and what they were coming up with was so perceptive and so witty and uh, that we ended up recording their words and using them through the production. So we had this live goggle box commentary around the play and the actors ended up doubling the characters in the Jane Barry play and the quality street workers. So that for me was, uh, it was an experiment to do that. But we're going to continue with thinking about who we make each production with because it changes how we see the, sh- how we see the period, how we see the the politics of the piece, how we see the story, and it makes sure that it's resonant for a new audience. So that's something we're going to continue doing. Um, the digital work, which, of course, you were brilliantly so uh, part of during lockdown, we want to make sure that we're continuing to explore that because it makes the work accessible to more people, doesn't it? And, and I think that's something that we're all learning in the theatre industry of how we blend the live and the digital because the live event is always going to be the thing that we're most excited about and we're championing that we want to share with audiences around the country but sometimes people can't get in to see you um and it also opens up other creative possibilities we're definitely going to develop that as well yeah because i think a lot of um the conversation that happened throughout lockdown was about the space um of which we perform so what a traditional theater might be and where we where we can now break down those barriers like you yeah. were saying so similarly yeah. like what you did with the aftermath at the peace hall yeah and broadsides broadside have always done it you know broadsides have always performed in the non-velvet spaces they started off doing that and but maybe over recent years um has settled much more into a more conventional tour so it is a really exciting prospect to start looking again at performing in really unconventional spaces because you reach different people um so yeah I, I that's definitely on the cards i want to end with a quote of yours oh dear <laughs> <laughs> what have i said for me it's more the sharing of life experience in the rehearsal room than it is in the theater it's a space where we safely explore how we all view the world how it's knocked us all about and what our hopes are for the future This quote brilliantly explains your love of the rehearsal room, but also helps to define the space we want to create on our podcast. Laurie, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. 
I know everyone listening, the team and myself are so excited for you to return to the rehearsal room and stage, which we have all so greatly missed. So Laurie, thank you for being here. Thanks, Millie. And we can't wait to go out and see everyone again because we've missed you all so much. Um, you know, that's that's why we do this is to see you all all over the country. So I can't wait to be on the road again. Thanks, Laurie. Thanks. <laughs>